The following audio is from The Springs Church. More information about The Springs Church is available at thesprings.cc. Good morning, Springs Church. I want to welcome everybody here in the name of Jesus Christ this morning. And visitors, I want to give thanks for your presence with us this morning. Thanks for joining us. Uh, If you're tuning in on the live stream I want to thank you for watching and worshiping as well with us. Uh, I was really, really moved by Valerie's communion homily, and I just want to um, give thanks and a shout out to her. That was so, so wonderful and very thoughtful. Um, I also was, uh, when I saw that she was doing her communion homily barefoot, I have to admit, I was jealous. (laughs) I love being barefoot as my office mates can attest. But the problem is, is that unlike Valerie, my feet are very ugly. (laughs) I do not have pleasant looking feet, so that will not work out, but that's all right. Um, I will just live vicariously through Valerie there, so. Um, But thank you for your comments, truly, that was wonderful. And uh, we are in our seventh Sunday in our Luke sermon series this morning, The Spirit-Powered Gospel, and if you need to catch up on any of those sermons leading up to this one, uh, you can do so, I just want to remind you, on our sermon podcast, Uh, and you can find that, it's on Apple, iTunes, it's on SoundCloud, Um, you can just go to our website, thesprings.cc, and if you hover over the messages tab, you can go down and find our sermon podcast, so you can catch up and get caught up to today, which is Luke chapter 7. We are in Luke 7, verses 18 through 30 this morning, so turn over in your Bibles if you want to follow along or watch the screens. The disciples of Jesus reported all these things to him. So John summoned two of his disciples and sent them to the Lord to ask, are you the one who is to come, or are we to wait for another? When the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to ask you, are you the one who is to come, or are we to wait for another? Jesus had just then cured many people of diseases, plagues, and evil spirits, and had given sight to many who were blind, and he answered them, go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have good news brought to them. And blessed is anyone who takes no offense at me. When John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to look at? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? Someone dressed in soft robes? Look, those who put on fine clothing and live in luxury are in royal palaces. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes. I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, see, I am sending my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, no one is greater than John. Yet the least in the kingdom of God 
is greater than he. And all the people who heard this, including the tax collectors, acknowledged the justice of God because they had been baptized with John's baptism. But by refusing to be baptized by him, the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected God's purpose for themselves. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you as one body this morning. And we lift up your name in song, in scripture, in prayer, in sermon, with one voice, Lord. I ask God that you would speak a word of truth to us this morning from your scripture, that you would give me the gift of preaching. And I ask God that we would walk out these doors with hearts changed and resolved to point to you in all that we say and do to point to your kingdom come on earth as in heaven in Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray, amen. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you will name him John. You will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He must never drink wine or strong drink. Even before his birth, he will be filled with the Holy Spirit. He will turn many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God. With the spirit and power of Elijah, he will go before him to turn the hearts of parents to their children, and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. This is our seventh Sunday in Luke, as I said, and in the background lurking behind these first seven weeks has been a very special character, a very important character that we have thus far left untouched, and that's John the Baptist. John is not just a special, important character, but he has a very special, important place in Luke's gospel. Surely all the gospel writers, all four evangelists, have an important place for John, but Luke is the one who gives us this very extensive backstory. Luke is the one who gives us the angel and the prophecy to Zechariah, his father. Luke gives us John's mother, Elizabeth, and her pregnancy and her special relationship to Jesus' mother, Mary. All of this we find in the Gospel of, of Luke. And so this morning, I want to ask three questions that are centered around John the Baptist and particularly his exchange with Jesus in Luke 7. I want to ask, who is Jesus, according to John? I want to ask, who is Jesus according to himself, and who is John according to Jesus? So Jesus according to John, Jesus according to himself, and John according to Jesus. Let's begin with Jesus according to John the Baptist. Now, the last time we would have seen John in Luke was chapter 3, and we would have seen him in the wilderness preaching the coming kingdom of God, preaching repentance, baptism, forgiveness of sins, and preparing the way for the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And so it's in verse 18 of chapter 3 that it says, John proclaimed good news to the people, but when John rebuked Herod the Tetrarch because of Herodias, his brother's wife, and because of all the evil deeds that Herod had done, Herod added this evil deed to them all. He locked up John in prison. So John was speaking truth to power and condemning Herod's unlawful, sinful marriage, and Herod locks him up. And while John is in prison, as we've seen over the last few weeks, the ministry and career of Jesus begins to take flight. He begins to gather momentum and gather speed. And all the while, we, we don't hear much about John. And in chapter 7, we get here, and Jesus heals the centurion, as Valerie referred to. He heals his servant, and he heals the widow's son. He raises him from the dead. And then in verse 18, it says that the disciples of John reported all these things, these miracles and happenings, to John. So John summoned two of his disciples and sent them to the Lord to ask are you the one who is to come, or are we to wait for another? As I've been dwelling on this passage over the last week, I, I can't help but picture John in terms of Luke Skywalker. So if you've seen the original Star Wars trilogy, you know that Luke is this young, energetic, confident, bold, revolutionary leader. And he's got this optimism and idealism and his whole career ahead of him. But if you've seen the recent Star Wars trilogy, and particularly The Last Jedi, you know that things have changed. Luke is different. He's secluded. He's isolated. And he seems to be growing a bit disenchanted. His, his belief and idealism seems to be waning. And that's kind of how I've seen John and his arc in the Gospel of Luke. That John comes on the scene and he is this confident, pugnacious preacher bringing about the kingdom of God. And he, he comes on the scene and preaches repentance with energy and, and hope. And then by Luke 7, John is in prison. John is secluded and isolated. And it appears that his belief is beginning to wane. Because he asked this question, are you the one who is to come, or are we to wait for another? Why would John ask that question? Remember in verse 18, it says that his disciples have reported to him all these things they've been seeing Jesus do, and yet he sends them back to ask Jesus, are you the coming one, or is there another? Well, scholars and commentators and Bible readers have tried to put forth reasons for why John would ask this question, and one of the reasons they've put forth is that maybe John is not doubting per se, but maybe this question is actually hopeful, that, that actually John knows who Jesus is, but he has, is only just beginning to realize it, and he wants to have his inference confirmed by Jesus. 
And others have said that, well, maybe John is not doubting per se, but maybe this question comes out of impatience. That John knows who Jesus is, but he's kind of trying to spur him on to, to get going, to make some progress, to do what he has come to do. I don't particularly find either of those explanations all that convincing, but what they do illustrate to me is what a potentially embarrassing story this is. What a potentially embarrassing story this is to include in your gospel. If you were compiling and assembling a biography of the life of Jesus and you had to make some cuts here and there, this is one of those stories you might just leave on the cutting floor. You know, maybe we don't want the story where John the Baptist questions who Jesus is. Maybe we don't want to include the story where John the Baptist doesn't quite seem certain who this Jesus is and what his ministry is about. But in reality, it's not hard to imagine John wondering. It's not hard to imagine him secluded, locked up in prison, wondering if this whole liberty to the captives thing is really even going to happen or apply to himself. It's not hard to imagine John wondering about the nature and identity of Jesus, wondering about the outworking of this messianic ministry that he's been proclaiming and pointing to. In fact, later in the chapter seven, we'll see that John and Jesus had very different styles of ministry. Right, John is known for this kind of ascetic, very humble life of self-denial, and Jesus is known for his radical table fellowship. He's known for the people he eats and drinks with, unsavory folks. So they had very different styles, and it's not hard to imagine John sitting in his cell wondering, is this really what God is up to in the world? Is this really the way that the reign of God takes hold, and Jesus, are you the one to do it, or is there another? It's not hard to imagine from John. Who is Jesus to John then? Well, in Luke 7, he doesn't seem all that certain. And the truth is, John is not the only major figure in the New Testament to have questions about Jesus even after exposure to him and confession of him. John's not the only figure to struggle with this in the New Testament, and he's not the only figure today. I think we even can relate to John's questions about the nature and identity of God's work in Jesus Christ. Maybe some of us have labored all of our lives with a John the Baptist-like zeal for the kingdom, only to feel that our efforts were fruitless. Maybe some of us have believed and proclaimed from day one, from birth, who Jesus is. And then friends leave the church, and children leave the faith and tragedy befalls us 
all the while yesteryear's burning belief cools to embers. It's not hard for us to imagine John's questions because we may have asked them ourselves. Who are you, Jesus? And is, is God really up to something in the world in you? Is God really establishing his reign this way? But how does Jesus answer? In verse 21, Jesus had just then cured many people of diseases, plagues, and evil spirits, and had given sight to many who were blind. And he answered them, go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have good news brought to them. You know, Jesus could have answered with a straightforward yes. He could have answered John with a straightforward claim to his messianic office, his divine identity, but he doesn't. And instead of saying, he does. He heals. He casts out. He forgives. And Jesus says, instead of listening to me, look at what I'm doing. Look at my actions and you will see my identity. Look at what I'm doing and you will see who I am. Look at the way I preach, teach, rebuke, forgive, restore, call, heal. Look at who I am and by that you will judge what I'm doing, and if I'm the coming one. And then Jesus adds this wonderful little beatitude in verse 23. It says, and blessed is anyone who takes no offense at me. That word offense means literally kind of tripped up, or we might say scandalized. Blessed is anyone who is not tripped up by me. And reading this beatitude in our day and age, I have to wonder this question, does the Jesus we worship present any possibility of offense? Could the Jesus you believe in possibly offend anyone? Or is Jesus just a total confirmation of your priors, your prior beliefs, or a total conformation to the taste of you and your peer group? Or does this Jesus present any possibility of offense? Because clearly it seems that he does in first century Palestine. And if you can't imagine Jesus being offensive to someone, then I think there's a couple possibilities here. I think it's possible that you're not listening closely enough to Jesus. Jesus says some very hard things. He demands some very hard things. He speaks to certain people in very pointed, harsh, even severe ways. 
And if you can't imagine anyone being offended by the Jesus you believe in, perhaps you're not listening closely enough. Or perhaps you're not living closely enough to Jesus. I loved Ben's sermon last week, and he reminded us of Jesus' words to love our enemies. And then he asked us at the end of his sermon, is Jesus your Lord? And if you can't imagine loving your enemies being an offensive task, then perhaps you've never tried. If you can't imagine being offended by trying to actually love your enemies, then perhaps you haven't been living closely enough to Jesus. But Jesus says, blessed is anyone who doesn't take offense at me. So who is Jesus according to himself? Well, to those who are perishing, he is a stumbling block to be tripped up over. But to those who are being saved, he is the power, the wisdom, and indeed the blessing of God. Which brings us to our third and final question this morning. Who is John the Baptist according to Jesus? In verse 24, Jesus begins uh, teaching the crowd about John. He says, what did you go out into the wilderness to look at? A reed shaken by the wind and someone dressed in robes. And and he goes on and he continues, and in verse 26 he says, yes, John's a prophet. I tell you more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, see, I am sending my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, no one is greater than John, yet the least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. How can Jesus say this? You know, I wish we had time to talk about the reed and the robes. It's really interesting imagery, but I think we need to focus in on this this saying that he says that John is the greatest of those born of women, which means just every human being ever. He says, of those born of women, John is the very greatest, but the least in the kingdom is greater than John the Baptist. How is this possible? What has happened? Well, what has happened is the kingdom of God has dawned. A new era, a new order has dawned in the coming of Jesus Christ a new era and such a distinct change of time, change of order has happened that the very least of those who belong to this new order are greater than the greatest of the old order. The very least who belong to this new covenant, who belong to God's inbreaking in Jesus Christ, are greater than the greatest in the old dispensation, the old covenant. John the Baptist is surpassed by all who participate in the reign of God in Christ. You know, it's as if everyone leading up to John and including John is knocking on the door. 
Everyone leading up to and including John is knocking on the door and Jesus says, everyone in the kingdom, even the least, they're inside the room. John is the last and the greatest standing at the threshold of the kingdom and Jesus says, even if you're the least of those in the room, you're greater than John. Another way to think of it is that John is Apollo 10. Apollo 10, two months before the Apollo 11 shuttle that landed on the moon, was the dress rehearsal for the moon landing. They, they ran through every calculation, every possible specification. They tested everything short of landing on the moon. And it was a great mission. In fact, it set the speed record for the fastest manned shuttle. But the difference between Apollo 10 and Apollo 11 is enormous. We, we've gone from an era where human beings have not touched the moon to an era where human beings have touched the moon. And this is the seismic shift of the kingdom of God coming after John the Baptist. Jesus says, if you belong to this kingdom era, you're greater than the greatest of the old era. So what was so great about John? Why was John so great? In verse 27, Jesus says, this is the one about whom it is written, see, I am sending my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. John's greatness didn't consist of his humble life of self-denial, admirable though it was. It didn't consist of his powerful preaching or the number of his baptisms, though I'm sure they were formidable. John's greatness consisted in his proximity to Jesus. John's greatness consisted in being the preparer of the way right before Jesus, standing at the threshold of Jesus, standing close and pointing to Jesus the Messiah. That's John's greatness. On the slides we've got a painting by Matthias Grunewald from about 500 years ago called the Isenheim Altarpiece. And this is a painting that hangs in France now, but a copy of it hung above the desk of a theologian that you all know that I love named Karl Barth. And as Barth labored over thousands and thousands of pages of theology, he labored over it with this painting above his desk. And he even wrote about this painting. He loved this painting. And what he loved about this painting is that the task of theology and the task of the church, of all Christians, consists in that man on the right side of the painting. That man is John the Baptist. And in this painting, John stands with that one long bony finger and he points it at the crucified Messiah and he says, there is salvation. This is the task of theology, of the church, 
of anyone who wants to follow Jesus is to stand to the side and to point away from ourselves to Jesus Christ. Is to point to that Jesus Christ and say, blessed is anyone who takes no offense at him and say, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in the salvation accomplished in Jesus. Church, may it be our highest aim. May it be our greatest ambition, our most dazzling achievement that by grace we resolved to point the finger of our lives to the crucified God, the risen Savior, Jesus the King. Let's begin by pointing the finger in praise together as we stand together.